Hungish Perak, 31 Sukkim. We have three distinct sections. We have the first section, which is the story of Shimshon uh, going down to Aza. And then we have the second uh, section, which this is, this is like from Aleph to Gimel, three Sukkim, very short. But it's another one of these same similar type of, of stories with him and the Pushti women. And then from verse four to verse 22, that's basically the story with Delila. That's the most famous story of Shimshon. And then from Chaf Gimel to Lam and Aleph is the, um, the tragic ending of Shimshon. So let's take a look at this text. And we start with the story at Aza. Now, in order to understand what went, went wrong here, what's the problem, we need to kind of go back to the previous chapter to understand that chapter 16, like we, Shimshon is four chapters. It's the longest story in Sefer Shoftim. Um, Gedon gets three chapters, um, Devorah gets two, and Shimshon is the last judge that we meet in Sefer Shoftim. The next five chapters, which we'll be working on after this, Hashem, the next five chapters are not specifically about certain judges. So this is the last one of the stories of the judges. If you recall, I told you that, um, that the chronological history of the judges is, verse, is chapters three to 16 in Sefer Shoftim. And so this is the, the most extreme story. We don't really see it following the usual cycle. And it's the longest story for four chapters. But what happens at the end of the third chapter, so chapter 13 is about the birth of Shimshon and the, the, the miracle and everything. Chapter 14 introduces us to the story of the first uh, Pushti woman that Shimshon goes after and we get that's really what they would call in English literature foreshadowing, because the story of that woman, the Timna woman, is going to break, break down in a very similar way, the same story with Delila. And chapter 15, we, we turn into certain um, uh, complications of his life, the revenge against the Plishtim, the fight with the Plishtim, and the, the um, the, the relationship that he has with the Jewish people coming into play there. Because up until then, he's been totally working his own thing. And then all of a sudden the people of Yehuda get involved and he has to deal with that. Now at the end of chapter 15, we have Israel be made pushed to Mesrim Shana. He judged the Jewish people in the times of the Pushtim to 20 years. So this is actually a very strange warning shot for us. So what how do we have oh, oh, sorry. <coughs> How are we supposed to understand that? In other words, this, this is the way we end the story of Shoftim. We have a whole nother chapter to go, so we're not ending the story of Shimshon. We're continuing. So why are we getting this sort of end statement? And that's kind of a clue for us that Shimshon's life as a judge has gone into this like 20-year period. And now at the end of the 20-year period, something changes. I have to try to figure out what's going on and what changes. Now, 
And Shimshon went down to Aza, and he saw there a woman, a Zona, and he went to her. <coughs> now, <clears throat> her map. Should have my map. My map. So he's been living, you know, in the Timna area at Sara Eshto. If you look, Asa is the southernmost Pushti city. Asa has never been a good place. It's still not a good place. And um, just for those of you who who don't don't uh, get this, in in English we call it Gaza. The Hebrew is Aza. There are uh, the pronunciation of that ayin in many dialects is a, is a is a gimel, but it's really. Gaza, the same old place where we have lots of trouble from there. Anyway, he goes down to Asa and he goes to the house of a Zona. So now, what is up with this? What, what's going on here? It's a very, very strange thing because why would he be going to a Zona? And, and the Chazal say <coughs> that this was the beginning of his downfall. What are you doing in the house of a Zona? So, of course, the Farshim say here, Rao Bag says, Now, Pundak, uh, even in modern Hebrew, is an inn, a pub. So the Targum translates, and we have a few zonot in the early stories of, of the um, Nevi'ah. We have the woman's Racha, who does, you know, uh, Giur and eventually marries Yeshua, and she's a Zona. And then we have the mother of Yiftach, who is an Isha Zona. And then now we have this Zona. So the a lot of the Farshim explained it as a Pundikitsa, an innkeeper. And they say Zona, not Milshon uh, uh, to, to go astray, but Milshon Mizonot, we say, right? So she's a woman who serves food. However, you know. The simple meaning of this still stands. <coughs> and they make a joke about it, you know, coffee, tea, or me. Explain the Mepharshim that this woman who runs the inn is not, you know, is not um, averse to making extra money in other less legitimate ways than serving food. So this is a strange place for Shimshon to be. Shimshon's done a lot of weird things. So why are we? worrying about this, but then we go back to what's hitting him. He is now a judge in Israel for 20 years. So his status has changed. You can't run around with the Pushti women the same way if you're an acknowledged judge of the Jewish people. So how are we supposed to understand this behavior? Let's look at, at the rest of the story here. It's only three psukim and try to make sense of it. More, a very cryptic phrase. It was told to the Aza people, they were told that Shimshon was there. Who told them? We don't know. They turned around. They lay in wait. They ambushed him. The gate of the city is, is their site of ambush. And that, you know, if you if anyone goes to uh, the old city and they look at Shariapo, you get a sense of what a city gate looks like. It's a big, big thing. And these are people who live in a walled city. Aza was a walled city. So they said, what are they gonna do? How are they gonna capture this man? They're gonna close the gates. And sooner or later, he's gonna wanna leave. And we got him. Vayitharshu means they, they 
were quiet. They, <coughs> they were plotting. They were whispering. When the daylight comes and he tries to leave, we will kill him. Now, the mom has an interesting theory here. The mom says that actually Shushan told him he was there. And we have to ask ourselves, why would he let out such a rumor? And take a look at Pasigimel. Okay, and we, we know that there are many miracles that happen to Jewish people at midnight. He, he lies down until midnight and he gets up at midnight. And this is an amazing feat. He goes to leave the city and the city gates are locked. And they're not expecting him to come in the middle of the night. They think he's not going to leave till the morning. So he comes in the middle of the night. He comes, he sees the city gates are locked. He grabs the doors of the Shara ear. The doorposts where the mezuzahs are. Now, the bariach is the bolt. In Israel, the lock company for doors is called Rav Bariach. Bariach is bolt, the thing that closes the door. So he uproots the city gates with the lock closed, lifts the whole shebang up, and off he goes. Right? He put it on his shoulders. And he walked with them until the mountain that overlooks Hebron. Now, go back to our map so we'll know what we're talking about with this map. Okay? Here is Aza, and here is Hebron. So even if he doesn't go to Hebron, he goes to a, a city, a, a, a mountain that overlooks the city of Hebron. I mean, this is very far. This is very far. The Das Mikra, you know, of course, Kedarka Barkodesh, they come, come up with a, like a mound. They say it's almost 40 miles. He's carrying the city gates with the lock. What is he doing and why is he doing it? So it would seem that this is how Shimshon, right, is making a demonstration of power and strength. And this is how he is telling the, the Plishtim, I'm still here. Don't forget about me. And the, the Mepharshim suggests that perhaps he did this. This is what the Malbim says, that maybe he wanted to make this demonstration. And he went down there with this idea in mind because the Plishtim are quiet while he's the leader. And then things kind of went off. So maybe that's what happened. <coughs> he decided... The Pushtim are getting restless. The Pushtim are getting um, dangerous. So let's, let's show them who's still around. The problem is, and this is what, something to think about, once he's done this, once he's made this demonstration, once he's in this place, right? What does he do now? Go back to the Jews? Go back to live as a judge? after he did this whole demonstration. So he will be doing the thing that he's been avoiding his whole career. He will be bringing the wrath of the Philistines down upon the Jews. So now he's done something which kind of makes him stuck. The Pelishtim don't want him and he doesn't want to go back to the Jews because there he's getting them into trouble. And that's not, it's not what he's there for. So now Shimshon is kind of in this place. Where do I go from here? This brings us to the next story, okay? 
And it was after this. Now, those words are always a symbol that we're connecting the two stories. The two stories need to be connected. And the symbol is saying, right, after the events of Aza, right, he's in a bad place because where does he go now? So now we hear by Ye'ehav Isha B'Nachal Sorek, Ushma Dalila. And he loved a woman in Nachal Sorek, and her name was Dalila. So Nachal Sorek, let's see if we can find it on the map. Not so sure if it's clear here. It isn't really, but it's coming from Rushalayim westward. It's not in any of the areas where he has been hanging out. And there he meets this woman whose name is Delilah. Not, by the way, Delilah. Now the Chazal say that her name is Delilah. <coughs> What's Dal in Hebrew? Dal is thin. In modern Hebrew, Dalel is to thin something out. Let's say if you want to, you know, um, you know have a pail of paint and you want to thin it, you Dalel. Right? So the Chazal say that she, Delilah, Dildila, she made him poor. Right? And um, her name, right? This is the Gemara and Sota. You see? Uh, all right, well, it's not in this piece. Okay, but it is in the Gemara and Sota that he. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they say his, the width between his shoulders was 60 cubits because he was carrying those uh, city gates. In any event, the Rashi says that, that his, his, uh, she was called the Lila, she, she, she weakened his strength, she weakened his heart, she weakened his connection to Akash Baruch Hu. And here we have something we did not see before. It says he loved her. Now, what do we do with this? He loves her. And now we have to ask ourselves a number of questions. First of all, who is she? Second of all, why does he love her? And let's start with who is she? So it seems from what goes on here that she is uh, a Philistine. And there is a debate among uh, the Mepharshim. Again, does he marry her? And if he marries her, does he convert her? So we have a similar story with the first wife, the Timna woman. And it seems that it's likely that he did sort of, you know, try to convert her or get the, uh, get something going there that she should be, you know, a, a, a good partner for him. But we don't know. Ralbag says here, we've not pushed him. It seems to me that he um, converted her. Now, why does he love her? So that's a more difficult question to answer. We don't get a lot of information here, but I would suggest that it's part of a Yehiyacharei He's separated from his family. He's separated from the Jews. He's hasn't got any kind of chevra. And so he's lonely. It seems to me to that that should be an answer. He's lonely. She's nice to him. She takes him in. 
And he has a thing for, for women. He has a thing for women. He loves her. And we're not told how she feels about him. The Sarne Pushtim was a group of five governors. If we go back to our map, the Shivshon, uh, uh, the Pushti form of government was that each city of the five Pushti cities had a, a governor who was called a Seret. So the cities were Ashdod, which isn't on this map, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Aza, Gats, and Ekron. Those five cities, each one had a Seret. And the Seret, today it's a, it's a rank in the, in the Israeli army. In any event, they come to her, these, the Hushava governors of the Plishtim, and they say to her, Patioto, cajole him, entice him, in modern Hebrew, seduce him. And they come to her and they said, find out. And they have two, two questions. The Malbum is very concerned that we should see the distinction here. Number one, why is he so strong? Why is he so strong? What is the nature of this superhuman strength? And how may, may we capture him and bind him to afflict him? Now, it's very interesting here because the, the people of Yehuda also bind him. There's a thing binding him. Let's restrain all this power. This power frightens us and this power is dangerous. We want to know what it's from and how do we stop it? And they don't say to her, and this is interesting, and the Malbim points us out also, they, they don't say we're going to kill him. Perhaps they're aware that there is some sort of relationship there, and they may get her to, you know, <coughs> to betray him. But if they say, you know, we're going to kill him, maybe that would be too much for her. I think that might be giving her too much credit because they say 1,100 pieces of silver we'll each give you, which would mean a total of 5,500 pieces of silver from each one of the five Sarnim. Oh boy. And the problem with giving Dalila any kind of benefit of the doubt is that the, the text makes very clear that it's all about the money. It is all about the money. So, you know, you want to say, well, she didn't want to kill him. The Malvin says, I don't know. She's doing it for the money. Now, it seems to be a, like a thing, this amount, because we see this also with Pesal Micha, chapter 17, we'll see that. And so she begins her campaign. And she asks him flat out. Shimshon, tell me, how come you're so strong? How could I tie you up? How could I subdue you? And this is strange because you would imagine that he would just say, I'm out of here. 
What is she up to? And the Abarbanel goes into a whole discussion of, it, it, it's, it's interesting when he says, the Abarbanel says, you know, when people are in love, they want to give each other their secrets. And, you know, and she's doing this like, if you love me, you'll tell me what your secret is. Like, how are you so strong? What makes you so strong? How can I subdue you? There's something very weird going on here. And I don't know. I don't, I don't like it. You know, it sounds very weird. And if he was less susceptible, he would just say, I'm so, I'm so not up for this and I'm out of here. Or there's so many things he could say. When you think about it, he could say, you know, Dalila, I have no idea. No idea. Or he could just say, God loves me. He could say many things, but he doesn't. He starts down the slippery slope of lies. And you know what Shakespeare said. <coughs> oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. He says, if you tie me up with seven uh, uh, moist ropes that were never dried out, I will be like other people. So he's giving her something that he makes up. What's the deal? What does he want to do here? And why? Why? This, in, in many ways, the story is aggravating because like, what are you doing? And if you start telling her this, you know, why? Now, the Malibin makes a point of saying he never says what his strength comes from. He does, he only answers the second question. How can I be tied up? He's only going to tie me up with, you know, seven new ropes. Now, you know, the Farsham explained that they made ropes out of intestines of animals. So if, if it was dried out, it would be too brittle. Tie me up and then I'll be like everybody else. So of course she, Right. And the Sarnay Plishtim, they get the, 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 the word from her. <coughs> and they, um, they bring her the ropes and she ties them up. And they are in the next room waiting to see if this is going to work. And of course, Shimshon doesn't know that. But Tommy love, she ties him up. And she's the Pishtim are here, the Pishtim are here. And he, and he snaps the seven bonds, right? As if they were flax that had come close to fire. If you ever take like a, a thin piece of like rope, and you put it close to the fire, it becomes very uh, tight and it just goes straight. He didn't even have to exert himself. A load of that thing is just like, bonk. And, you know, there's the, pushed him in the next room. There's nothing for them to do because he's just. But Toma Dalila Shimshon persecuted. He ne he told me, but to the very like Sabim, Matagida Nali Mameta said, You lied to me. And let her tail is to make fun of. <coughs> <coughs> you know, Hashem is uh, 
Mahatel um, Paro, Hashem makes fun of Paro, right? So you have this idea, you're making fun of me, you're mocking me, why don't you tell me? Tell me you lied to me. Now, if you follow the story of Shimsho, you see a pattern with the first woman, the Timna woman. And she says, you don't love me, you hate me, why don't you tell me? And Shimshon are big, macho, super strong, carry the, the, the city gates on his shoulders, do the whole shebang, kill thousands of people in one shot. He cannot resist these women. Right? Just as the first woman wore him down, Delilah starts wearing him down. And the Radak points out that this is, you know, it's telescoped in Perik and you just get one thing after another. But we have to understand that this is going on and on and on and on. This is a campaign that she's waging for days and days to get this out of him. She wants her money. And he says to her, oh, I forgot to tell you that these ropes could not have been used for anything else. So he makes it as if I forgot a detail. I, I was telling you the right thing, I just forgot a detail. And the pathetic thing about it is that she's going to do it. <coughs> she's going to try it again. Why doesn't he see that she's going to try it again? And this is where the, his love for her comes into play. He just thinks, you know, she's, you know, she just wants him. This is how the environmental explains it. This is how you prove your love for me by telling me all your secrets, by being open with me. If you're not straight with me, if I don't know what's going on with you really, then then we're not really in love and it's all a fake out. And he can't seem to resist this kind of pressure. There are other things that might be going on. I will, you know, um, keep this discussion clean, but there are all kinds of strange things that, you know, sub, uh, you know sub, subtle messages that there's something a little unhealthy in this relationship. She wants to tie him up and he was going along with it and something not so normal happening here. And he, she tries again. So she takes, okay, the new ropes, new ropes. She ties him up. And the same thing. After he's tied up, she goes, the pushtim are here, the pushtim are here. And the pushtim are waiting in the next room. And he burst them from his arms like string. Now, in the first case, it says, he didn't even have to exert himself. This is already a little harder. He has, it's like breaking a thread. He's got to exert himself a little bit. You're lying to me. You're making fun of me. Tell me how I can tie you up. And here we see the hitar darut, the deterioration. Because first of all, and we have to start asking ourselves the question, like, what's going on with this man? Don't you see where this is going? 
one of the things about teaching Shimshon is super frustrating because you keep wanting to say, Shimshon, what is the deal? Don't you see that she can't be trusted? Don't you see that everything you tell her, she tries? And, and he keeps falling into the trap. He just can't seem to help himself. And he loves her. And he doesn't believe she'd betray him. And I think you also have to put into this mix a strong faith in a Baruch Hu. A Baruch Hu is going to get me through everything. He really feels that Hashem is with him. Now, if you take a look, by the way, at every feat that Shimshon did in chapter 15, and in chapter 14, by the way, it says Hashem's spirit came upon him. But when he does the Asa stunt, right, back in verse 3, Parsa Gimel, no mention of God. God is not in there. So the question is, if God is not in there, and he's carrying city gates, which is no, it's a, it's a miraculous feat, that means that he has strength, either God is with him, even though he's not manifesting himself to, to him, or that he has strength, even when God isn't directly giving it to him, he is physically super strong. We don't really know how this works, but we see that there's some kind of quality about Shimshon that feels Hashem is with me, it's, it's gonna be okay. He does, he has like this confidence in her, confidence in Hashem. He has been betrayed. He was betrayed by the Timna girl. He was betrayed by the people of Yehuda. And still he feels it's going to be okay. So <clears throat> I think one of the lessons we have to learn here, especially when he goes down to Oz and he puts himself into the situation with this Zona, is don't have so much faith in your spiritual strength. Like Al Tam in the Mishnah says, don't have so much faith because if there's spiritual danger, you should be aware of that. Shimshon is a Nazir, right? Once he gets into the discussion of his hair, he is on very thin ice. And the third thing he tells her is if you weave my hair, the seven locks of my hair. Now, it sounds like he was kind of, a, I don't know, a rest <laughs> He must have put it, like, if you never cut your hair. Now, you figure the guy must be something over 40, 20 years a judge, right? He's 40, 50, and she never cut his hair. That's a lot of hair. So he must, and you can't pull it out. He can't even comb it as a nausea. So he must have tied it up. In these seven locks, he says, Sheva Machlopo Roshi, the seven locks are here. It sounds like some kind of dreadlocks. And once he goes there, he's on very thin ice. Weave my hair into the loom, right? Now, the loom was not like, you know, as if you see a little weave, which you do make a little potholder. This was a massive machine with a warp and a woof, and you put like it in and out. And if you weave his hair into a loom, you can't, it's hard to imagine that hair is not going to be ripped out. So he's already gone over, over, uh, crossed the line and, you know, he keeps lying to her and he doesn't, you know, <coughs> one theory is that he really doesn't know. He really doesn't know. And he's, 
He's trying to get at the truth himself. He's actually curious. You know, I wonder what it is. Well, once you talk about the hair, oh, now, now, now you make messing up. So, Pasuk Yudalin, right? She doesn't just weave his hair into the loom. She takes a tent pin and she bangs the whole loom into the ground, which means, and it seems, <coughs> it's got a little bit uh, of play in the different refarshim about how this works, but it seems that certainly for this uh, attempt and the next one, <coughs> that she puts him to sleep on her lap because it says clearly in the next situation that she puts him to sleep on her lap. It's not really possible to tie a man up like Shimshon unless he's sound asleep. So she has him asleep. She ties his hair in the loom. She tacks it into the ground and she does her shtick again, right? And he woke up from his sleep. So clearly he was asleep. And he just gets up and he, with his head, he picks up the whole loom out of the ground, the whole thing, and he just walks off with it. All of his hair all attached to it. So again, Hashem isn't mentioned, but superhuman strength is very clearly there. And that's something that's like crazy. Now, if you notice in Pasuk Yudalid, we don't have the orave, the push the ambush in the next room. They have not come. They're like, Dalila, you know what? Tell us when you really know. They don't want to come down every time in a wild, you know, goose chase, not a goose chase, but what do you call it? Red herrings. Pasik Tetva. But tell me, love, how can you say you love me? Your heart isn't with me. Three times you mocked me and you didn't tell me what your strength is so strong. Like, you, you're, you're just fooling me. And it's, it's, it's kind of painful because, right, here is, here is he, and we're told that he loves her. He wants to make her happy. And she is driving him crazy. If you're following the Radak, this is not happening overnight. It's again and again. And look at Tetzayin, which is a corroboration of the Radak's theory. He and it was that she pressured him, bothered him with her words all the days. And she forced him. And he was so fed up, he just, he just wanted to die. He can't handle the pressure. And here is... Again, you know, my theory that he is very strong and very weak. And there are so many wonderful qualities about Shimshon as a leader. But when you see him in this position, you're just like, oi, she doesn't let up. Nudging and nudging and you don't love me. And now, you know, the female is definitely <laughs> the deadlier of the species. She's got him where she wants him. And the Chazal are pretty explicit here. Okay? But I'll say you, Amu Rabbeinu Zechonam Levracha, Shaita Shometet Atzma Mitachta Bishat Atashmish. Okay? 
women have weapons. <coughs> so it seems that she pressured him sexually that in the middle of their relations, she would leave. And he was so miserable and frustrated, but he, he couldn't take it anymore. He's just like, you'd rather die than be in this position where she's treating him so, uh, so badly. And he just, he loves her so much and he can't put up with this any longer. And this becomes very painful. By Agenla at Kalibo, and he tells her his whole heart. He gives up. By Yomila, Moralo Allah Aloshi, Kinaziro Kemanimi Betanimi, Imgulachi Visarmi Menikohi, Vahaliti Vahiti Kahalada. Now he says to her, he tells her his whole heart. The Pasik tells us that he tells her his whole heart. He is now completely open with her. A razor has never come upon my head because I am a Nazir of God since before I was born in my mother's stomach. If my hair would be cut, my strength would leave me and I would become ill and I would be like anybody else. And here, this is painful. First of all, a lesson of Avera Guerrero's Avera. You followed your eyes. You followed the Pushti women. You put yourself into this trap. You put yourself into positions of danger. You didn't, you weren't uh, careful to keep yourself out of dangerous places. Another lesson for us. If there's spiritual danger, so obviously if there's physical danger, we try to avoid it. If there's spiritual danger, you have to avoid places that are spiritually dangerous. And um, sadly, sadly, he falls into this trap and he tells her the truth. And it seems as if he himself is trying to get to it. Maybe he doesn't realize it until this moment. He says, you know what, I think it's in my hair. And Abarbanel makes a very clear statement here. Abarbanel says, it's not in his hair. It's not, you know, this is not a fairy tale. His strength is not in his hair. His strength in, is in his kedusha and his connection to God. But it's symbolic. It's symbolic of that connection to God. He's a Nazir. And Lila saw that he told her everything. How? Does she know that this time it's the truth, right? Matsuda says here, Rashi says here, you know when someone's telling you the truth. And it's not so simple, right, as that. He says things that are very clear. He tells her, I am a Nazar of God. He doesn't throw around God's name and anything else he said. He didn't mention God's name to her. You go, oh, he's talking about his God. All right, he wouldn't mention God's name for nothing. And then everything fits. This is why it's Nikrin Emet. We recognize the truth because everything makes sense. Oh, he never cuts his hair. Oh, he's a godly human being. Oh, this makes sense. So she tells the Plishtim, this time I got it. 
Come on up and bring the money. Right? Ba'alu eleha sarne pushtim pasikit chet ba'yaluha kesapiyadam. Don't bother coming without the money. And this is where I say you can give her any benefit of the doubt you can. Like the Chazal say, it says Shema Delila. That's usually an expression for a righteous person because, you know, bad people, Nabal Shmo, Goliath Shmo, the Shmo comes after. I don't know. Shema Delila could be started off as a nice person, but she's been corrupted by this bribe and she is willing to sell him out for cash. Knowing that he loves her. And this is a very, uh, <clears throat> I said last week, that one of the lessons, the lessons we learn here are relationships are negative relationships. Be loyal, be loyal to your spouse, be trustworthy, right? You, if you don't have each other's back, then what's the whole point? What is the whole point? Extremely sad. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, they come up. And now comes the very sad denouement, right? Think of what a uh, evil woman she is. She puts him to sleep on her lap. The faith that he has in her, it's heartbreaking. But to crawl at each, and she calls in the man, but to galachet sheva machapot rosho, she calls in the man to cut his hair. But and she begins to um, afflict him, and his strength left him. What does it mean, anoto? It's not so clear. She was moving him. He's asleep on her lap, and she's trying to see if he's as strong as usual. And she sees his not. And he jumped up out of his sleep. And he said, I'm going to go out with my strength and I will shake myself out and do what I need to do. But he didn't know that God had left him. And there's our question, why has God left him? What, what's happened here that God has left him? And <clears throat> we see that this, this confidence that he had, even beyond his hair, let's say she, she tied him up twice, she wove his hair in the loom, what's to stop her from actually cutting his hair? If he tells her, she could theoretically do that. But something in Shimshon feels like God is with me anyway. God is always helping me and it'll be all right. He has faith in a Kaddish Baruch Hu, but he doesn't know a Kaddish Baruch Hu left him. Now, why does a Kaddish Baruch Hu leave him here? Because a Kaddish Baruch Hu said, you, you left Jewish people here. You put your faith in this woman and Hashem lets him go. And the Pushtim grab him and they blind him. They gouge out his eyes. They take him down to Aza. 
and they tie him up in chains. And he was grinding in the house of the prisoners. Ay, painful, sad. Okay, they take him and they blind him. He is not able to resist anymore. God has left him. His strength has left him. And it seems as if his, it reminds us of chapter 10 when God was fed up. He, he was fed up. He couldn't take it anymore. And he's ready to just take the consequences. And they're brutal. They don't kill him, but they blind him and they bring him to prison in Aza. And the Chazal say he was punished in Aza because he began his downward spiral in Aza. It's as if chapter 16 is a whole new chapter in his life, which is like down, going down. And now this is the ultimate humiliation. They take this proud and powerful man and they make him nobody. They make him an animal. So what does it mean that they, he was grinding the Beit Asurim? So I don't know if you've ever seen a picture or in, in real life what um, millstones are, but um, the way they would grind uh, wheat, any kind of grain, olives, grapes, is they had these two big, you know, donut-shaped rocks, massive, and the bottom one was called a rechaim, and the top one was called a rechet, and they would put the top donut on top of the bottom one and stick a, a stick through it. And usually these heavy stones were pulled by like a team of oxen. When they wanted to punish prisoners, they would have them pull. It's a tremendous, tremendously hard work. And he would be going around with this as if he was a donkey or an ox grinding. Now there's a tremendous medrash here very bizarre, but I do have to tell you what it says. Look how Rashi puts it delicately. Rabotenu Pirshu, Masha Pirshu. Hey, rabbis expounded, but they expounded. That is code, Rashi code for, I don't like it, but I figure I better mention it because it's there. But the, <coughs> the Medrash says, which Rashi does not bring, that all of the Plishti men would bring their wives to the prison and insist that they would sleep with Shimshon so that their children would have, you know, Shimshon genes, which shows you A, their cruelty, B, their corruption and immorality. And I think it's safe to say the next, the next story at the end here, this is like kind of uh, one more story here, a very sad story. You see the depravity and um, the pushed evil of these people. Dalila is an example. A little footnote on that story, his hair began to grow as soon as it was shaved. Now, again, the Bible says the strength is in the hair. The hair is not the point. But this does give us a little ray of hope because the plishtim, you know, they don't expect his hair to grow so fast. They wouldn't have let it grow so fast, but it's growing really fast because Hashem is, is giving him also a little bit of hope. They make a little poem, right? And it goes like this, right? This is uh, the, the, the Navi makes it like a poem, right? They have 
gathered, all of a sudden, the five generals, they gathered to make a sacrifice and a, a big festival for Dagon, their god, and for a celebration. And they're saying God gave us Shimshon. The fact that they captured Shimshon, they blinded and imprisoned him, is a cause for this big idolatrous feast. They saw him and they praised their God. Now, Dagon, by the way, has two interpretations. One is that it's from the word Dag, and Dagon is a merman. And we have um, corroboration of that idea in Shmuel Aleph chapter five, chapter four and <coughs> five, where you see that um, the Plishtim captured the Aron there, and, and it seems like the Dagon has a uh, the body of a fish and the, the head of a man, but also could be from grain. So they were seafaring people, so they could name him after the fish or after the grain. In any case, that's their god. And as there is a drunken, it's a, you know, it's a feast of wine and revelry, and it's, it's completely depraved and degenerate, and let's have some fun, bring out Shimshon, and let him amuse us. And they bring him out to make sport before them. So it's hard to imagine Shimshon doing anything that would, you know, like entertain them. So it, it seems to me that the Etzim and Yan, the actual uh, entertainment is Shimshon, just the fact that he's standing there blind and weak. And that's just hilarious, isn't it? It just shows you that uh, kind of people that can make fun of a person when they're down. This is like just plain rotten, evil, degenerate. And the Malbim says, this is, they ask and he's like, he makes a distinction, the Malbim, that they want him to be funny, but for him, the tzachok is only external. Like he's inside, he's, he's so sad. Apparently he needed to be led around by a young boy because of course he can't see. And he says to this boy, let me rest and let me be by the pillars of the house and I will lean on them. So if you're that boy, you think he's weak, he's tired, he needs to rest against the pillars. But it seems as if Shimshon probably knew this temple from previous days. And he knew what was going on there. Men, women all together with their wine. And all the leaders are there. It makes me so angry. On, there must have been some sort of inner uh, sort of area. And then there's a roof on top. And there's 3,000 people just on top. So you can imagine how many people are in this whole temple of Dagon. 
And they were all watching Shimshon and laughing and enjoying his misery. Now Shimshon, he's left his people. He's, his family is gone. His women have let him down. He's only got God left. And he calls to God. Remember me and strengthen me. Notice it's Pa'am. We started the spirit of God, Pa'am. Came within him, Pa'am, Pa'am. And then we see that he says, The spirit of God came in him from time to time. He says, one more time, God, one more time, strengthen me, Ha'elokim. Editorial comment. My brother-in-law, Dove, uh, made a song about this, which became, was taken over by Shalshelet. It was a very popular orchestra, and it's become a very, very popular song. And uh, Dove sang it. <laughs> he changed Plushtim a little bit, not so politically correct. <coughs> But the, the general version is pushed in, and it's a very popular song. And by the way, it, it sort of became an unofficial anthem of the Israeli army when they are in battle mode. Zachreinina, remember me, God, give me the strength. And notice Shimshon first talks to Hashem, the din, uh, um, the Mida of Rachamim. And then Hashem Elohim, Rachamim and Din. And then Elohim, he says, I have every claim on you, Hashem. Remember me one more time. Because the Chil Hashem that's going on here is so excruciating. The, the, the celebration to Dagon of the humiliation of that Jew who was the representative of God's strength on earth, it's too much for Shimshon. He can't, this God help me. And let me have revenge. This is only worth one of my eyes. One of my eyes should have a reward in the next world. The suffering that I went through, the suffering that I, I had it was a, a punishment, but because of that, Hashem helped me and remembered me. And there's a very beautiful message here that Rashi brings. Remember 20 years, Zohreinina, remember 20 years, half years, that I judged Israel lo amarti I never asked them for anything. I never said, pass me a stick. I was only there to serve Jewish people. And people who talk like this, who talks like that? Moshe. Moshe says, what do they want from me? I never took anything. Shmuel says, right? The same thing. <coughs> it's actually this Aptorah. When this is in Korach, he says, what did I do? And Aptorah Shmuel saying, me I didn't take anything from anywhere. And Shimshon is up there with the great sisters. I never took anything. Remember that I serve the Jewish people and have mercy on me now and help me bring a stop to this Chil Hashem. And he grasped the two pillars that the house was standing on by and he pressed on them. He leaned on them. There's one with his right or on his left. Can you imagine a structure where two uh, sustaining walls were close enough for him to push against them both. 
which is a bit of a problem. He said, I, I want to die together with them. And he pushed with all his strength. And he pushed and he brought down the whole house in that expression, literally. And you imagine thousands and thousands of pushtim were crushed. And the pushtim that he killed at that moment were more than he killed <coughs> his whole life. So we have some questions here. What, what's going on? Is he allowed to commit suicide? And it seems that he is now correcting the Chil Hashem that he had caused and making a tremendous Kiddush Hashem. And that's really, you know, we have a few things we learned from this. First of all, Eino Milvado. When the push comes to shove, you've got to rely on God. He says, Hashem, help me now. Give me the koa. It's not the hair. Remember, it's not the hair. It's the connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives him this power and he pushes and he brings it down. And this is a reward according to the Mepharshim for the selfless a Jewish leader is not supposed to be in it for the money. Compare all of the political leaders of today and all they want is the money and the kickbacks. And here you have a person who's the most strange and unusual Jewish leader in probably an entire history of Jewish people. And yet we see that selflessness. I never asked them for anything. Please Hashem, give me the reward for that. I just protected them. All I wanted to do is protect them and help them. And Pasik Laman Aleph ends the story. And his brothers and the whole house of his father came, came down, they carried him, they brought him out, they buried him between Sar and Eshtaol in the same cover of his father Manoach and he judged Israel for 20 years. So a few words about this, and we're really out of time. <coughs> Number one, how did they find his body? In a crush of in somewhere upwards of five or 6,000 dead plishtim. And if you ever see any videos of terrible tragedies and catastrophes, one of the things they're doing is trying to find people. So the Medrash says, but we go back to the bracha of Yaakov, and I don't think I have the text of it here for you, but Yaakov says that Dan will be like a snake on the path, right? We talked about this, and he bites the foot of the horse and the rider falls backwards. So here the Medrash says, as the rider falls backwards, so the plishtim fell backwards. They all fell away from Shimshon to enable his family to find his body easily to bring him to his burial. So that, that whole bracha that Yaakov gives to Dun <coughs> is a description of Shimshon's life. He's that snake on the path. He's that sneaky attack. He bites the rider, he bites the horse, so the rider will fall backwards. And even the Medrash gives you an insight of to how they brought him and buried him. Actually, a very interesting theory. The, the Chazal say 
why does it say twice that he judged Israel for 20 years? And they say that because he was so powerful and so terrifying to the Philistines, <coughs> after his death, they were afraid another 20 years and they did not make trouble for the Jews for a six, another 20 years after he died. And I heard an interesting theory that when they came to bury their own dead, they didn't see his body. So they were never sure if he wouldn't come back, which I found a very interesting theory. In any event, it's a very, very painful story. Every time you see, why is he telling her? Why does he trust her? And um, he just seems to be, um, you know, that that's that's the weakness that we see. That's the um, the thing that brings him to the downfall. But <coughs> God gives him that great power to bring them down and to punish them for the cruelty with which they treated him. A sad story, very sad story. Another another point I want to make is his brothers. So there's a number of theories about that. It could just be his his tribes people, the house of his father. But there are, are commentaries who say that after he was born, his mother, like um, Hannah, after Shemuel was born, Hannah had other children, that he also had brothers, which is an interesting thing that Gemara talks about him having a sister. So um, he, when he dies, he comes back to his people and he is honored. And in fact, my kids tell me, I'm, I have never been, but I do, after teaching this story a number of times, I really, I wanna go. They said, well, you know, you can go visit the Kever of Don, you can give a, visit the Kever of Shimshon. It's not far from Beit Shemesh, so it's on my list. Okay, I'm gonna stop the screen share. If there's any questions. Yeah, tough story, painful, it's a hard one. Mommy, are there any Mepharshim? You can unmute yourself if you have any questions. I want, do you hear me? No questions. Not, no, Ruti. I am. Ruti. not Ruti. working. I don't hear you. I don't know what to do. Do you hear me? I hope you heard Ru me the whole time. I hear you, Ruti. I don't know why do Mommy's not you. Yeah, we hear you. Just Mommy doesn't okay. hear me. So Zahavi, you tell them. My question is, if there's any Mepharshim that... So how I don't hear for you. her punishment. Somebody else say something. Ruthie? Hi, do you hear me, mommy? Do you hear? No. Maybe I hear you very low. What's the question? Volume? Try your volume. I know. I, op I opened the volume. It could be they were, you know, they were messing around in here a little bit. So it could be. Okay. So, so Ruti, you ask your question and I'll ask mommy. Do you hear me? I, I hear, hear you better a little bit now. Yeah. Okay, I wanted to know if any of the Mefarshim talk about her fate and her punishment. What happens to her? Yeah. No. Something should happen to her. Something bad, yeah. My suspicion is that she got zapped in that temple. <laughs> it, it's hard to know, you know. She's a person who's capable and, of selling him out. She's just as capable of standing there and laughing at him with everybody else. It makes you rethink the idea of a circus and performing animals. It's it's just Tzar Balichayim to do that to, to a, a fellow creature, to just you know be able to enjoy 
someone else's misery is a terrible, terrible thing. And um, I think one of the themes that we see in, in Sefer Yeshua and Sefer Shoftim is the tremendous contrast between, you know, the Jewish people and the people they live with. I mean, if you took, in, in this story, there's a lot of women. You see this also in Devorah. In Devorah and Ya'el, we contrast to the mother of Sisra, right? Here in the Shimshon story, we see contrast his mother, this big tzaddikis, this really kind and thoughtful wife with these pushy women who, you know, they run off with other men, they're unfaithful, they're deceitful, they're treacherous. The, the, the betrayal, the treachery, the, the cruelty, they're just, uh, we're, we're meant to see their society as very, very degenerate. And it's we're meant to contrast that to what, what we're supposed to be. And unfortunately, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Look at the society around us. Look, we live with these people who celebrate when people get killed. They send out their own children to kill people and then they give out candies when their kids get killed. Like, you know, they're just, you know, they, they kill each other at, at a whim. They kill their daughters if they look the wrong way. We're, we're, we're meant to see the other society as something to stay far away from. We don't know what happened to her, but we hope it was something mean and bad, boiling oil. Did, did, did the Jewish people respect Shimshon while he was alive? There's, like, there's not too much about him during the time that he was actually a show faith. Like you don't hear any stories uh, like, it seems like there was all these like crazy stories with the plishtim and then he, you know, he was a show fate, but like, there's nothing about that. And did he get honor while he was alive or was once he died, they so were it like, seems oh, like you that. know what? It seems like between the end of chapter 15 and the end and the beginning of chapter 16, we have two separate stories. <coughs> In other words, at the end of chapter 15, he judges for 20 years. So he's established himself as a person to be feared, as a force for the, the, the Philistines to stay away from. And so he's able to be a regular judge with the Jewish people and just to, and he doesn't ask them for anything, but he's just this, they're, they're a righteous leader in a more normal sort of scenario. But then when we see chapter 16, he does this massive downturn. <clears throat> so one of the theories that I, uh, <clears throat> that I found intriguing is that he, at the end of 20 years, the Plishtim start raising their heads again. So his status as ordinary judge is now not working because He's got to pull out from the closet, you know, Shimshon the crazy, you know, uh, Rambo. He's got to do that again. So he goes down to Aza and he makes this demonstration. I'm still around. I'm still as strong as ever. Don't mess with me. And it seems that the nature of going down to Aza and where he ends up by the Zona so even if his intentions were good, he's now going to get the Plishtim scared again. 
because he does it in this really unkosher way in the house of Azona, he's now again distanced himself from the Jewish people. So he can't be that ordinary judge. And now that's, that's what makes it easier for me to understand how he ends up with Delila. He's cut himself off from his own people again. He's not so young anymore, right? And he's lonely. He's just partial lonely. He doesn't, he pushed him to want him. The Jews can't have him. It's a bad move to go to. So he just ends up in Nahas awake and he meets her. And she's his downfall. That's how it, that's how it seems to play out. The, the distinction between chapter 15 and chapter 16 is very distinct. It's very, very strong. This yeah. is where he was okay. He was a little bit on the edge, but he was still okay. And in chapter 16, he's just gone. He's just sort of. Yet yeah. he is buried with his family. But, he's buried with his family. And he I'm does sorry, end up. Ruthie? Yeah. I'm trying to tell you that he's buried with his family. He gets a raw, like an honorable burial. And he has a certain amount of, you know, esteem at the end of his life. And I don't know, just keep thinking after all this so sexual impropriety, he still kind of ends up uh, in an honorable place, which along. reminds me of some other things what? that happened, which, which are indicative to some other things that happened recently and... Um, you know, where, where abusers or, I don't know, or sexual improprieties are not treated with as much strictness as perhaps they need to be. I don't know why he gets a good, a nice little burial. I don't know, the, his, the, the stuff with the women disgusts me. I, but I think it was like a different halacha back then when it came to, I mean, not, I don't think it was different, but when it came to women who weren't Jewish, I mean, today we look upon it and we're like, how, but in those days, it seems like, I mean, Avram Avinu was married to Hagar, like, and all these other, you know, well, great people had the these like- says very clearly, I showed you that source. The Rambam says, don't think that Shimshon or Shlomo married non-Jews without converting them. <clears throat> and it seems that it's what we, we might call a, a reform conversion. And we don't really know how sincere they are until things play out. But it seems logical to me that a person, a man with so much power is going to come along with an unusual amount of manly power. And like he was like, this goes together in my mind. The fact that he's, you know, got a thing for the women that goes together with all of his, you know, physical power. And that's the contrast when we see him starting off as this like spiritual being and he's the, you know, and the nuzier. And then all of a sudden you find out that he's, he's very, very physical, but he is very connected to Hashem. That's what makes him like completely out-of-the-box hero. And I think one of the lessons we can take from this is that we have to kind of be aware that we have out-of-the-box heroes. He's not the only one. 
We have out-of-the-box heroes. We have people who are so not conventional. You know, like the from world today is so conventional. Everyone has to be. And then you get these like types that do all these crazy stuff. And they're like, I give an example that comes to my mind. Rabbi Kahana, Mayor Kahana. What was the deal with him? Beating up Russians. I mean, is that what you do? Is that how you behave? It's not a good Jewish, but you gotta let the Russian Jews out. And he made a big fuss and he beat up the Russians and he did stuff. And it was all out of his, I mean, I knew, I knew him. He was our neighbor downstairs. The first year we came to Israel, it was a very interesting, he was such a gentle, soft-spoken man. And then if you heard him speak, fire and crazy, he did crazy things, but he was a, a tzaddik. So like we have out of the box heroes and God puts these things in their heads, you know, go figure. Right. He, he did crazy stuff, but he got stuff done also. The Jewish Defense League. Get up and fight all those anti-Semites. We need him today in New York City. It would be very nice over there. People are getting beaten up on the subway, right? Not a bad thing, not a bad thing, but like, and everybody said, you know, Mayor Kahane is crazy, so this. There are such people out there. And, you know, these are the people that I think of as like, you know, Karishpo, who puts them there also. We have others in, in Jewish history. Listen, yeah. people used to and say about Baruch Goldstein, the same thing. Baruch what? Goldstein, Baruch Goldstein. He was a doctor. Yeah, like Baruch Goldstein is like a whole, you know. But I'm um, saying, I don't know. People um, go crazy when they mention the name Baruch Goldstein. But it seems as if he snapped. That's how it seems to me. He had so many friends that got killed. Someone told me last night, we had a family wedding last night. And someone mentioned to me, I don't remember uh, how we got on this subject, about how the children who grew up in Hebron in those years and in other hot flashpoints, they're all traumatized. They're all traumatized. They just saw too many, you know, terror attacks and, 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 and death and, you know, it was too much of it. And it, like it left its mark on them. So it sounds like, you know, he just had... Um, very good friends, Lapid, but just before that happened, close friends of his. Like he was a doctor, so he attended all these situations. Yeah. But it's hard to put him in a category of, you know, Shimshel. No, because I'm not I'm not saying that. I'm saying that yeah, it's a little bit unknown. Yeah. Out of the box have to remember category. that it says in the <coughs> in the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah. Yiftach Bedorah Kishmur Bedorah. That our Jewish leaders are the ones that we have. Um, we don't we don't get a choice about that. So we Kadosh Baruch Hu is giving us what we are supposed to have at that time. Good night, Utila. All right, um, we'll close. Very it very sad story. It's a sad story. It's a hard one. Yeah, yeah. I feel so bad for but, him. But you play that song, you know, when in 2002, after all of those horrible bus bombings and the peak wind that were going on here and the terror that we lived with, right? 
So finally, Ariel Sharon said, we're going to go out and fight. And they played on the radio. They had buses of soldiers going out to fight. And they were singing, Zahreinina, Zahreinina. <laughs> I, it, it was unbelievable. I quickly called my mother-in-law to tell her, Dove's song is the anthem for the soldiers going out to fight against the terrorists. And that, that's what gave them koah. They were so, we were all in that like fight. So, you know, it's very interesting.